Hello, just a quick bit before this week's episode to let you know that we have a Patreon you can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it. You probably already knew that. We don't stop going on about it. What you didn't know is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it. And then for seven days, you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly. And during any month, as part of that Biggest Mates tier, you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday. You'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month. Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just the Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. It's easy to see any requests for music? What? Oh, for the start. I was going to say probably Mannix. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. First of all, we need to sort out that um, obviously we've got two Steves with us this time. Oh, yeah. Um, so what do we call Steve? I, I think the new Steve should have the privilege of naming the old Steve. <laughs> <laughs> So what do we refer to Steve for this episode then, Steve? So, uh, well, Steve Murphy, are you a, a PH or a... I'm a V. Are you a V? See, like, he should take the Steve then because I'm a VH. Okay, well, what do we call you? Steph. Steph. <laughs> so it's with a PH. Your name's Steve, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not at the beginning. Okay, that makes sense. I don't know. Good. I can, I, I, <laughs> One. We can, we can figure it out. It's fine. Yeah, you can call me Murphy. Okay. Do you think yeah. people will get very... Oh, yeah, okay, we'll call you Murphy. Yeah. And we'll call... Murph. There we go. I'd like to Murph. be Lucas. Okay, yeah. If we're changing names around. Lucas is just Quagmire from Family Guy. It's all good. I'd like to, I'd like to be uh, Richie. Okay. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Big veto on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Sean uh, Moore? Can I be called Sean Moore? Okay, then. Hello, and welcome to Do You Love Us? A critical analysis of the history cultural impact and music of Manic Street Preachers. I'm Adam Scott Glasspool. With me, as always, is Steve Murphy. Hello, you nailed that intro this time. You didn't mess it up. I know, I have to close my eyes to remember it. And Lucas <laughs> Way. You didn't nail it. You got me and Steve backwards. <laughs> and we're joined uh, by author of Riffs and Meaning, uh, a book on the album that we're going to be talking about today, Know Your Enemy, Stephen Lee Nash. Hello, chaps. 
What a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on. Oh, thank you very much for coming. Um, I... You're talking to us from across the ocean as well. You're in Canada. Indeed. Right? Yes. Yeah. Technology. Yeah. Which bit, which end of Canada are you in? Uh, I'm in the middle of Canada. I'm in Ontario. Okay. Uh, a city called Kingston. Not uh, Well, I say not too far from like Toronto. Canada is just so flipping massive that yeah. I'm, I'm a good like... 400 miles away from Toronto. I was say, you are the United yeah. Kingdom away from Toronto. More or less, yes. More or less, yeah. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit, Canada is big. It's yeah. flipping yeah, it's huge, big. man. It's so it's flipping big, huge. Big place, mm. and not many good, people. It's good to have those kind of revelations this early in the podcast. What, well. that Canada is pretty big? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, yeah. But we've blown this wide open. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here, uh, Stephen, Steve, Lee... Or I can just call you Naish. I don't know. I don't want to get confused with other Steve. Uh, it's. I just won't speak for the whole podcast, and then it's easy. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's yeah. actually ideal. Yeah, yeah, that's actually ideal. Um, Steve, we've invited you on obviously because you've, uh, you know, you wrote the book "Riffs and Meaning," um, which is about the historical and cultural context of "Know Your Enemy," which is very much what this podcast is all about. And I realise as I'm saying that. That I've forgotten to actually introduce what this podcast is about, and we've immediately started wittering on. So we are <laughs> we are going through the Manic Street Preachers discography, album by album, looking at the context and the history behind each album to see if that affects the listening experience um, from three different perspectives. I am uh, a very big Manic Street Preachers fan. Um, Steve, you're like a medium Manic Street Preachers fan, and yes. Lucas is a very small Manic Street Preachers fan. He's um, tiny. Kind of introducing um, to him to these things like for the first time we take a pause there because someone's knocked on my door oh, okay <laughs> great good start <laughs> is Gosh. it important is that staying in the podcast imagine I think it should. <laughs> imagine someone now we saw adam like backing into the room and there's a gun pointed in his face <laughs> <laughs> he just comes flying through that window in a minute but that, that's the great thing but they don't know that there's literally evidence being recorded of them the whole time yeah, yeah. and it's and it's really cool and it becomes like a whole little and we get a netflix documentary out of it eventually yeah sounds good man but I'm it's just it. sound it's not video right Hi. Was it important, Adam? Oh no, but Zoom records the video actually, oh, so wow. we're covered. Okay. Amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> uh my girlfriend had got a package. There you go. Oh, great. Um Insert oh, joke. Fucking hell, what was I what was I saying? Uh, you were saying about I'm a small fan and you're introducing me to the songs. Yeah. And this is the first album where I don't I didn't know a single song prior to listening to this. Great. Mm. Every other album I had something. So, which, um, Steve, begs the question, what kind of Manic Street Preachers fan are you? Big, medium, or little? I think (laughs) I'm probably on your scale, Adam, to be honest. Yeah? uh, As a fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, became a fan of them um, towards the end of uh, 1996, and apart from a few little dips here and there, I pretty much remained a consistent uh, listener of theirs stuck with them since 96 yeah yeah i think even i've had a few like a few dips like what what was it that first drew you uh to the the manics or or i suppose like um i suppose like take us on like your musical journey you know like what first got you interested mm. in, in music to the degree that, that you're that you're interested in now and also um 
what is music? <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer that one after. Yeah, uh, okay. Don't <laughs> if that's okay. I feel well. So, like back in the early '90s, when I was just a sort of young uh, teenager, I was really into sort of uh, rock and metal. Uh, sure. grunge mm. so I was a big listener of Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Soundgarden and bands like that mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of I sort of morphed into an indie kid at the kind of you know sort of start of Britpop so kind of uh, Oasis and Blur and, and bands sure. like that um, and then yeah like the Manics came along during that time and I'd been aware of them beforehand Um just through sort of my older sister, uh, I think. But you hadn't you hadn't got into them, had you been? No, no, not at all. No, uh, I I really did not like any British music at that time. Actually, when I was no, a, a, a grunge kid, I was just like into whatever was coming out of Seattle. Yeah, uh, right. Washington, yeah, yeah, basically. that makes sense. Uh, so I pretty much ignored British music until like it it started really blowing up in the UK and with with Britpop and with Oasis and bands like that. Um, but yeah, I, I was aware of the Manics just because I was like a, I was a heavy like reader of of like metal magazines like Kerrang, mm. and they were like they were in there on the periphery of some of the bigger sort of artists of that time. And so when when they sort of came out in '96 with uh, Design for Life, I wasn't really aware of their history, but I was aware of them, and uh, I was just very suspicious of them because hmm. I'd seen images of them, you know, dressed to the nines in there. First of all, they're like they're like glam gear, the yeah, feather boas and things like that, print. and then moving into uh, the military, the military stuff of the Holy Bible, and then all of a sudden mm. they were just on you know um, MTV dressed in nice car keys and uh, yeah and, and polo oh, shirts, smart, and stuff like that. very smart young men. Yeah, so I was yeah. really suspicious of them. <laughs> I was just like, what are you, these guys are obviously just riding on the coattails of Britpop, and it took me until uh, the release of um, the single Australia. And for some reason, that just clicked with me. I don't know why. Um, th- mm. That was the song that just got me. So I'd pretty much ignored them all that year. They, even though they were becoming one of the biggest bands, I'd pretty much r- wrote them off as as just being like, uh, you know, a, a blip basically in this in this whole Britpop landscape. And uh, but for some reason, Australia uh, just clicked with me, and um, I got uh, everything must go for Christmas that year. Nice. Uh, Christmas '96, and it just it did not leave my CD player for for six months solid. Um, wow. I, th- I think alongside that record, I also got Mosley Shoals by Ocean Colour Scene as well. Which, oh wow! Went, I've went, never which, heard that. Album. Which went unplayed. Which went. Unplayed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and then and then just throughout that sort of like first six months of '97, uh, I picked up. Um, you know, Gold Against the Soul, uh, Generation Terrorist, Holy Bible. Holy Bible was a tough one. I, Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah, took a, that, took a, that took a couple of years. Agreed. Yeah, it's a tough it took, listen. A, took a few years to get uh, to get really into that one. Um, and then yeah, just like buying up the singles from the you know the previous few years, buying them up on um, you know vinyl, trying to find them wherever I could. The prices were going up. Yeah. So you became a little bit of a little bit of a collector as well, then. Yeah, I kind of I, I carried on collecting probably till about two thousand and nine, and I kind of stopped there. But there's a lot of stuff that I'm missing, and you know, yeah, same. I can, I can there's a lot of material they released, though, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I don't have like limitless money. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is yeah. it? Um, what is it about the Manics that you think then like made you stick around for 
the length of of their career so far i i mean for me it's just uh uh well firstly just the quality of the songwriting uh mm. of the music but it is also the um uh the the pointers that they place within their music which directs you to other things uh so they're kind um, of like a gateway drug they really, they're, they're like the lots best. Lots of dark literature. And yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and dark moments in history and things like that. And um, yeah, I think that's really what it is. They kind of, they, they can write a song, but it's, it's, uh, it acts as a pointer towards other things, you know, philosophy, history. Um, I, some of my favorite writers, filmmakers um, have come from a Mannix uh, lyric or a quote on their record, mm. something right. along those lines. I think that's the main thing that, that keeps me with, uh, with them. Well, yeah, on our um, Holy Bible episode, yeah. Adam was googling like all nights about serial killers and how many people they'd killed, and it quite affected him quite badly, I think. But um, it does does tend to yeah. lend you down some interesting paths. The, the, this band definitely. Yeah, that was a weird really? few weeks. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah, just remembering back. <laughs> I remember um, this. This relates to the record that we're talking about now. But like in two thousand and four, I think I just remember being incredibly excited that Fidel Castro was releasing an autobiography. That's how nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> that's how nerdy it becomes man like i was like on the day of release yeah fidel castro's got an autobiography out i'm going straight. i mean i worked in, i worked in a bookstore so it helped i could order it pre-order it. but you know i was this is this is exactly like what they've done to me um <laughs> in terms of that and i mean this autobiography was like you can't see this on a podcast but i'm, I'm holding up about a brick size yeah. dry well, yeah. like just one of the driest things i've ever read but it was exciting to me uh, they would be so, so pleased to learn that that you'd list that you'd read a Fidel Castro book because oh. of their songs. Yeah, yeah, really. I don't feel I, I, I mean, before uh, the Mannix um, went and played in Cuba, I was probably I was mispronouncing Fidel Castro's name. So <laughs> yeah. it's calling him Fidel, you know. Fidel. <laughs> yeah, so, I think I think I've talked yeah. about it on the podcast before, but it's the Mannix that led me to being like a sixteen-year-old reading. Thus spake Zarathustra on a fucking bus home from college, and yep. really just behaving like a really tedious wanker. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that hasn't changed, has it? Adam? I was going to say, no. when you say did, when does that when does that stop exactly? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, and yeah, what is music? Did you just want me to go down that oh, rabbit yes, hole please, as well? Yes, I was I, just about you know, to press that, you for that. Yeah. No, I, I think um, for me. Uh, these days anyway um music is kind of like an emotional palate cleanser almost i can i can listen to music to uh change my mood i can listen to music to reaffirm my mood mm-hmm. um that's kind of what music is for me these days i think it's changed i think when i was uh, younger maybe when even like no your enemy came out it was more of an obsession I think as you get older, it just becomes yeah, more of when a you're sort a teenager, of... Uh, when you're a teenager, music is such a way of life for some mm-hmm. people, you know, and it really is everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Social clicks in school are largely based around what music you listen to, mm-hmm. which in turn decides yeah. what you dress like, which yeah. then decides who your friends are, which, which in... is the reason why we're still mates to this day. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, as, as, a, as a kid listening to, you know, uh, grunge and things like that, you know, I, I would, I, that did lead me to dress very differently to uh my friends so i pushed yeah. a few <laughs> I, bad uh, shirts yeah 
tested a few of my friends' patience, I think, on that yeah. sense. But uh, well, still, could be it's fine. It's okay. What I do like is that Adam asks every guest, "What is music?" to try and almost try and trip them up, and everyone always comes back with such a good answer. I think Adam's mm. getting quite um, upset with this now because that was very good. No, I love it because because every single answer makes Lucas's answer sound like a real weird outlier. <laughs> Well, I think I stand, this is a great I stand thing. by it. it. It's like every time you're going to ask this question, it's going to be different because it really is uh, mm. interpretation as well. That's the thing. And, and where you are in life and, you know, things like that. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. If I asked you that question in, in five years time or five years ago, you'd probably have a completely different answer for me. Mm. Mm. I mean, I mean, th these days I don't li really listen to too much new music either because you know I don't really have a lot of time. I listen to a lot of podcasts actually. Um, so, uh, but when I do listen to something new, I'm pretty much like listening to it solidly for uh, about a month, and then it might just drift away. Yeah. But like, eventually, became such a fan that it led you to uh, write a book <laughs> about yeah. the band. Um, can you tell us like how that came about and why you picked? know your enemy as the kind of jumping off point for their career um yeah i, I kind of uh, was interested in writing something about the manics um for a long time actually um but i could never find an angle which didn't lead me to write something which was just massive basically i mean right. you you guys have been recording a podcast for what like six months now or something like that and you, you yeah. i'm sure you guys realize that it takes an awful lot of time to to troll through the Manic's back catalogue, and you're only it halfway. Does, yes. um, well, only one album has yet to be a single episode. Every other album has been a double episode. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And you, sh you should have seen Lucas's face when he realised how many albums the Manic's had. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah. what? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was I was looking for a way to kind of uh, write, write about them um, in a very sort of critical way. I didn't really want to just write a straight-up biography of them because there'd been so many. Um, mm -hmm. Simon Price's book is perhaps still the best Manic's biography, yeah, although it only takes you up to a certain point, but it's still the most uh, the most uh, sort of uh, furrow. Um, so I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write something that was going to be kind of uh, uh, a critical of the band, and but also a celebration as well of my own love for them as well as other people's. Um, and so. I kind of uh, just was looking at their catalogue and kind of realising that when you look at Know Your Enemy, it kind of acts as a little catalysm for for everything that they have they sort of did up to that point. Mm. And it kind of uh, raises points for their future as well as a band. And mm, okay. uh, I, thought, I thought that was just a really neat way in to sort of talk about their whole history and their potential future from that from that point of the uh, of their career um in, in a way it cap encapsulates a lot of the manic sort of fo's of uh, you know kind of um being a political band being a punk band initially mm. um being a band that writes you know incredible anthems as well yeah um what it didn't have was just the iconography i suppose of the previous records the kind of uh the, the sort of the dressing up and sloganing it didn't really have that so much but i thought as a as a musical adventure it was uh it was worth exploring um, and did you have that reaction when you like when you first heard the album or was it something that you went back and realized oh like yeah no totally went back and realized yeah at the time what was I your reaction did. to the album when it first came out i loved it uh yeah i was totally just straight I, away it was immediate for you yeah because it's it's quite a um 
uh, it's a black sheep amongst the um, the Manix back catalogue, really. No, your enemy. Mm-hmm. Totally, it's it very is, yeah. much like Marmite. I think a lot of people really, yeah. quite strongly dislike Know Your Enemy. Really, um, yeah. So uh, it was um, Lucas was alluding to earlier that yeah, this is the first one I don't think I've heard any tracks off before I started listening to it for this. And yeah. um, I, even Ocean Spray, that's surprising. Now I'd like. not heard any of them. I think every um, album prior to this, I'd had something. At least. And I'll, I don't want to give away my hand what I think about the album yet because I think we're going to go into that in the next episode. Um, but it shocked me. After um, this is my truth. That's, that's very clickbaity. Yeah. <laughs> what no. this man thinks of this album might shock you. Number six will <laughs> blow your mind. But it, yeah, it was definitely. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. This is different. It's, an, it's yeah. an odd beast of an album, and definitely reflects sort of where they were at the time and where they had been. Um, you, you talk briefly uh, in in your book. Um, and we mentioned it on on the last episode, Steve, about Toilet Gate um, as oh, being God. kind of emblematic of this odd point in their career where they were mm. huge mm-hmm. and um, and were bringing their own toilets to festivals, <laughs> which is <laughs> very against sort of the kind of thing that the Manchester Preachers would do. And so I've always seen this album as kind of a... Um, an attempt to get back in touch with that that younger sort of energy. Yeah, yeah, I really, I mean, Toilet Gate was uh, was was pretty amazing, actually. I'm quite glad it happened because uh, <laughs> Me I, too. Think, I, I think that summer um, of '99, yeah, summer of '99 yeah. was uh, was a yeah was a real turning point. You you look at the Glastonbury set, which is where Toilet Gate happened, mm-hmm. um, and the Glastonbury set is like, I mean, it's a pretty good set, but it's it's, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's kind yeah. of a slog, you know. Uh, but then they did tea in the park, and they did the V Festival, and they were just on fire throughout those uh, those uh, festival appearances. And it really like resparked their uh, their energy. Um, and you know, and then there was kind of pointers to it as well because you had like Masses Against the Classes released just well, out yeah, in the New Year, um... so that was a kind of like a punk song and. Yeah, that's the first sort of hint at the direction that they were. Yeah, take, so it, wasn't it, it wasn't completely unex- unexpected. I think I think listening to uh, "So Why So Sad" was a, uh, a kind of a shock because I'd never heard the Manics do that kind of a song before. Mm. Um, and then there was kind of more songs on the record that did that as well. That kind of yeah, uh, there's, br- a few, like there's a few breezy f- West Coast songs. kind of uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, my initial uh, reaction to it was I just thought it was incredibly like brave and weird. Um, you know, Miss Europa Disco Dancer. Yeah. What is it? I mean, what is that? I mean, mm. it's it's just... Not uh, something you expect from a Manic Street Preachers album. Really, really not at all. But I, I just thought that its weirdness was uh, something that really kind of, uh, uh, yeah, really appealed to me at the time anyway. Yeah. But that that weirdness is something that runs through the whole album. Like, there's all these kind of genre experiments, um, but even the ones that are very much kind of like straight down the middle rock uh, songs have some kind of like electronic mm. uh, accompaniment or some kind of odd structure. I can't remember the song, um, but it's got like laser noises in the background. Pew. Yeah, yeah. Pew. <laughs> yeah. Pew. I think yeah. that is that might be my gurney. Uh, it's either that or uh, or um, Dead Martyrs. Yeah, yeah. and Dead the Martyrs. problem that we're having with that, as two people that know this album quite well, probably 
tells you one sort of problem with the album is that it's quite difficult to tell some of them apart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. But th- and it's that, quite that, long. It's, it's long. Yeah, it's, it's a long yeah. record. Long. Yeah. I, I think. But it's uh, all. Yeah. <laughs> it, it could have been done with a little trim. Mm. Maybe a little one. Like, but it's all. It's yeah. all like of a piece. It's all quite. Um, it's all very lo-fi, I suppose. Mm. And um, they recorded it mostly at uh, Rockfield, I think, which is a bit of a, an infamous recording studio. Um, and the only thing I really haven't been able to find out is like if there was like a particular vibe to the recording it sounds like they wanted to do it all very quickly mm. do you know what i mean yeah yeah i think uh the way that they approached it was to do almost sort of like uh an instinctual uh, uh live performance or an instinctual take of a particular song so like a song like uh let roberson sing which is one of my favorite songs on the record is mm. uh, basically just a really, really good demo version of yes. Yeah. Which if they, which if they'd gone on and and uh, completely redid it, it would have been a pretty massive song, I think. But um, it feels yeah, very understated, I mean, actually. I, I like it for that. Actually, I it do. does. It has. It has again that like lo-fi aspect that this is my truth yeah. didn't have because I think I think we talked about it that they spent probably longer in post-production and kind of mm. mixing it and fiddling with it than they did probably recording the parts for mm. it. Whereas yeah. the opposite seems to be the case here. It seems to have been laid down very quickly yeah, and yeah. and then just sort of left. Like, yeah. okay, we've got that song out and now that's done, let's move on to the next that one. That definitely exactly. comes across yeah. across the whole album, I think. There is the odd standout track, like Miss Europa or whatever, that definitely that's feels like they've done... That's very produced, yes. isn't it? Yeah, yeah but a lot of them... <laughs> Probably the ones maybe that you were saying that do blend into each other are those that they've just kind of just shoved out there. Maybe I don't know. Um, yeah. Certainly. What was it like being a Manix fan in, in two thousand and one and and having this album that kind of jumped across genres very willfully? Um, <laughs> out, of, out of really out of my group of friends, I was the only real kind of obsessive Manix fan uh, by mm, that same. point. Um, the few of my sort of friends who. Um, were in the in the sort of late nineties, it kind of drifted off and and began liking other bands, I suppose. So I think the Manics were a little hard to justify at that time because of um, this is my truth. Tell me yours. Felt uh, it didn't feel like a very youthful record, and I was still only twenty, right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. nineteen <laughs> nineteen twenty. Um, so they they felt a bit um, stodgy at that time. But then when Know Your Enemy came along, it became a little bit easier, actually, to sort of... Uh, but uh, because This Is My Truth was maybe so commercially like widespread and they were number one and all that kind of stuff, maybe yeah. is that what you're saying? So therefore, yeah. when they came along and did something mad, which I would yeah. say this album is, it, yeah. it was kind of a bit more, oh, they are going back to the punk roots of just doing whatever the fuck exactly. they want. It, it felt like uh, you could then just sort of say or justify... Um, your fandom because yeah. they were referring back to a time. I, I think Know Your Enemy refers back to a time previous to um, uh, Everything Must Go and This Is My Truth mm. when they were a little bit more dangerous as a band. Definitely. Although you can Sonically. still sense you can sense them being reined in like a little bit maybe. I mean I think the original plan wasn't wasn't the original plan to release two albums on the same day and for Know Your Enemy to be split into two. Really? Well, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd kind of heard that that there was an idea that they would do uh, one, one, or at least like one side was going to be kind of like the more uh, uh, punky 
sort of songs, and then one yeah. side was going to be more uh, of the sort of breezy West Coast sort of stuff. Yeah, I think um, that side. I think I think they were split up into albums called Solidarity and Door to the River, is what ooh. I've read. That's interesting. Which obviously yeah. obviously implies that the 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 upcoming uh, Door to the River from the Greatest Hits was recorded around sort of. No yeah, that, I think that song does come from that era actually. Um, I guess they kind of did it with uh, Rewind the Film and Futurology, which you haven't covered yet, but. That's true. That's yeah, kind of a, an album that was recorded very. Uh, uh, two albums that were rec- recorded at the same time, which sound very different. Um, mm. But uh, um, one of the strangest yeah. things about Know Your Enemy for me is that um, you touch on this, uh, touch on this in your book actually. That um, they chose to create, go back to creating very angry, um, political music um, that was recorded in like late two thousand. When basically everything was was pretty much okay in the world, there wasn't a lot of sort of like political stuff to be angry about. Yeah, um, yep. it comes out before it comes out in two thousand and one, but it comes out pre nine eleven. I was going to say, yeah, nothing nothing bad happened in two thousand and one, did Adam? <laughs> <laughs> nothing world changing. Nothing bad had happened yet. No, it yeah. came out gotcha. in March. Yeah, um, that would have been interesting to see how. Because they seem a very reactionary band, from what we've been going, how that might have changed that album had it come out, had they recorded it during that, you know. Well, the post nine eleven album that they bring out is is very sort of um, very mature and very safe. Mm-hmm. Very is this lifeblood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Spoilers. Yeah. What, what is it? What is it that you do you think like? Do you think it was just the um, reactionary nature of the band that made them want to get back to being angry, or do you think that they that there is a kind of they felt a sense of duty to be angry at things when there still wasn't a lot of things to be angry about? Yeah, well, I think f- for our you know uh, part of the world, there certainly wasn't. I don't I don't feel there was too much. But then you know when you're younger, I don't think you do feel that way anyway, um, That's because because politics doesn't really affect you uh too much um so i think the reaction really was just from an internal point of view uh for the band i don't really think that they were reacting against any particular politics that was happening uh certainly in the western hemisphere um you know george bush had been in uh you know had been president for um uh one year by that point i believe Okay. So yeah. Uh but you know, like we all just thought he was an idiot, right? Like <laughs> we didn't think he was dangerous at that point. No. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean so there, he seems you know, very smart now. Yeah. I am yeah. longing for the days of George W. Bush. Just like, oh, wasn't it funny when he stumbled upon his words? Ha ha ha. And yeah. Now yeah. <laughs> really, we, we would love mistakes like that these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I feel like it was just a, an internal reaction to the criticism that they received uh, from their previous record of being a bit sort of, uh, yeah, kind of a bit stodgy and kind of a bit boring. Um, so it was a chance for them to kind of reignite themselves a little bit um, creatively in that sense. But then, you know, mm. yeah, when you sort of frame it in the post nine eleven, it it seems very naive. And, it does, uh, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, I think uh, "Let Robeson Sing" was released as a single the day before nine eleven. 
Really? Right. And how did that do in the charts? Then? I don't think that's it did. Quite a, yeah, quite an anti-American so song. Uh, yeah, very anti-American. Yeah, very American. Yeah, very anti-American. I don't think it did too well, actually. I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> I don't. I think it was still like top twenty or something. But you know, any manic single back then could be top twenty. So yeah, there and was I, no I issue think by there. that point, people had kind of made up their minds on the album a little yeah. bit, and yeah. people had started. I think you know, sales had become apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, which we'll get into uh, a, a little bit later, I suppose. Um, uh, there's a section of your book that I really like where you posit that the enemy in Know Your Enemy is the Manics themselves. Ooh, interesting. Mm. Yes. Hashtag deep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but they've yeah. always been quite self-reflective on them and, and talk about themselves in songs, haven't they? Like exactly. Yeah. From... Um, so that yeah. oh, that's interesting. I, I think yeah, you can look back at their uh, their career and you can see that um, uh, a record like the Holy Bible is a reaction to uh, the sort of uh, uh, the complacency of Gold Against the Soul, in a yeah. way. And that's a pretty extreme turnover, but you know, I mean, they were recorded within more or less a year of each other, and oh yeah, that know, is mad. Actually, which is mad I've, considering you, yeah. how polarizing they are. Yeah, yeah, um, and you can kind of see it in uh, uh, "Send Away the Tigers" as well as kind of a reaction to "Lifeblood," although there were, that was a bigger gap, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So yeah, they've always kind of uh, done things as a reaction to their to their past, basically, and uh, "Know Your Enemy" is no exception from that. I don't think. Um, on February the seventeenth, <laughs> what were you they doing? Play, <laughs> they play. Uh, Teatro Karl Marx in Havana, Cuba, to launch this album, making them the first major Western band to perform in Cuba since um, since is it Billy Joel and Chris Christopherson in nineteen seventy nine? Yeah, yeah. So it was over so. yeah. over twenty years since a major Western act had performed in Cuba, um, and then uh, the Manics were kind of the first first band to do that and then the rolling stones became the first band to do it again again <laughs> much later <laughs> yeah um oh. how how did that like how does that come about even do you think how does that fit into the album well there was obviously a few references to uh castro and, and cuba mm. you had songs like baby elian which dealt with uh, a, a cuban uh, event uh, references to the Bay of Pigs as well. Um, so I think it, yeah, I think there was elements there that they, that it was uh, a record that they could potentially launch in Cuba. They um, must have known that that was a controversial thing to do. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, it kind of shows that they'd completely like given up on having any kind of American market value. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cuba at this point was still under uh was it was still under the embargo wasn't it Oh yeah 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 um yeah. what what do you think the manics were trying to say or or do at this point I I mean I at the time I was you know I I loved it I thought it was a, an amazing gesture an amazing oh, yeah. statement I still uh, kind of do I still think it's really cool. I, I do, yeah, as well. <laughs> I, I, Is it just them saying "fuck you"? Basically, it's just a massive, fuck a very you. Yeah. big "fuck you" to everyone. But I, I think that <laughs> there possibly. is, uh, that, yeah, and I, I think it kind of worked. But then I think, in retrospect, it also kind of failed as well because, um, 
like it, it well when it when it happened when they announced that they were going to be playing in Cuba it it felt like it was just massive like it felt like uh it felt like it was <laughs> it felt like it was going to be live aid or something like that yeah. right just, okay. just just this like <laughs> massive event i remember them like getting up on a podium uh with like the not only the music press but like you know the the mainstream press as well all in this big yeah. room and yeah, they were talking about why they wanted to do this and stuff like that. And it basically was um, uh, an and it well, a, not anti-American, but an anti-Americanization of of culture right, and yeah. things like that. And they wanted to play somewhere where America hadn't really touched. I guess mm. that was the point. Um, and but, also yeah, getting so, back in touch with their sort of socialist roots as well. That's sort of like the last remaining socialist state wasn't it at the time cuba mm, yeah or north korea i guess i guess yeah oh, yeah, yeah so. <laughs> uh, i'm looking forward to when the manics launch their next album in north, north korea, korea. Mm, <laughs> yeah um yeah so uh, like i just remember it being incredibly cool and i got totally sucked into like the cuban revolution and and things like that into the into the history of that so it, well, this really, was my it next really question up. that was my next question actually because you know we're all about the context here so if you could kind of like sum up Cuba and in particular Fidel Castro sort of as briefly as possible and include a summary of whether or not Castro is good or bad. Cheers. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> He's quite a, div- a, a, a d- divisive figure, isn't he, Fidel Castro? Uh, yeah. Um To put it lightly. Mildly, yeah. Um, and of course he was at the show. So there he are was, now yeah. lots of photos of the Manics shaking yeah. hands with Fidel Castro. Yeah. Again, I, I just thought it was really cool. And uh but you know, that oh, yeah, that, so that handshake carries a lot of weight. I mean, there's a lot it of baggage there. But you know, um so I feel like the the gig itself was uh I, I feel that there's problems with it now because um the Manics I feel like what they should have done is not been so, uh, not not allowed so much press to attend and things like that. Mm, and it, sh- it, right. it it should have been like a secret show or something like that. And the only the only like documentation was some dodgy Polaroids or something like that that came out from people in the audience. So it it was it was overexposed. I think in the You're- end. Almost but like it's it a is... pub- like a publicity stunt. Almost. Well, that's, the, that's, well, the that's real what pl- I mean. Is that it, it is a publicity stunt? Basically, that, well, that's the real it? problem, isn't it? Because yeah. you know they they went to play in in Cuba. Uh, you know, an anti, well, you know, I suppose an anti-capitalist state. Yeah. For for the intention of selling a record. Yeah. Um, and then making a live DVD based off of it. And then making a live, yeah. And <laughs> that's so, and, true. And, and, that's and, so and, hypocritical. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. But it's it's so manix as well. It's so yeah. manix. Yeah. Uh, but you know what what kind of happened was you know in the end you know they had like three documentary crews following them. They had they had uh, Guardian journalists, the enemy journalists. They had so much entourage going with them mm. that it's incredibly well documented now. Mm. Um, but I think the real issue is is that you know manix fans uh, only got to see this gig through the lens of uh, uh, of the media basically. Um, That's true. I mean, the, no one was know, able to attend, really. Yeah, um, and 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 the crowds were were all people who hadn't really ever heard Manic Street Preachers. We'd never heard them. Yeah, they'd really? never heard Manic Street Preachers. Uh, they um, so because of the embargo. Steve, because of the embargo, but, you know, exactly. They wouldn't have yeah. been able to yeah. have had any sort of um, yeah, like 
cultural sort of things from the yeah. Western world brought into Cuba. So no way of selling a record in Cuba, basically. So yeah. there was no way that they could do that. Um, so how was this allowed to go ahead then? If Well, uh, um, uh, the US has an embargo with uh, Cuba, but uh, the UK doesn't. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, we have diplomatic relations, I guess. But Canada has quite a... Canada has really good diplomatic relations with Cuba. I can go, <laughs> I can fly over there whenever I like. Yeah, yeah. it's still quite a difficult thing to pull off. There, they had to have the help of a politician, didn't they? They yes. couldn't just yes. go like, "Oh, we fancy playing Cuba." Yeah, yeah. Were, book, yeah. Us, book us into that theatre. Yeah, yeah. So there was a guy in the Home Office, uh, Peter Hain, I think his name was. He was an MP at the time, and uh, not sure if he was a Mannix fan, but anyway, they asked him, and they they uh, they got the connections to, to make it happen, basically. Um, yeah, so I like in retrospect. I mean, I still think it's great, but I really think it failed in its mission to uh, to do what it was meant to do because oh, really, uh, yeah, I mean, it just kind of was too much overexposure for what it was. Which oh, and also as well, sorry, you... sorry, it, it was also just a very rudimentary Manic Street Preachers concert as well. I mean, the yeah, the, no Manche- the Manchester Nine uh, X gig from is a way better gig. Uh, this was just a greatest hits collection with a few Know Your Enemy songs thrown in. You know, mm. Wire couldn't put a skirt on. Um, he couldn't really put too much makeup um. on because the Cubans would have <laughs> frowned on that. Yeah. Ja- you know, James Dean Bradfield was just dressed in his baggy car keys and uh, his yeah. big shirt. That, okay. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's... Uh, so when when I think about that gig, I don't think about how it would have been to have attended it, and maybe it was brilliant to attend for, well, that's, for a that's Cuban what audience. I was, that's but what I was going to say yeah. is is that the gig seemed to be received very well in Cuba. Yeah, I imagine it was a great gig to see live. And then there were there were very mixed opinions of the gig outside of Cuba mm-hmm. from Manix fans. You mean from from, from maybe, maybe from, from Manix fans, but also from the press in general. Okay, it's sort of. Um, I think it, de- like, like you were saying, Steve, I think it definitely, it probably hindered the album more than it helped. Yeah, well, I think so too. I mean, if they were, if if you were going to appropriate a political ideology, then at least yeah. follow through and give the album away, <laughs> you know? If that's yeah, what's that's yeah. true. Or, or let people pay what they want for it or something like that. But, you know, it was still a, uh, you know, it was still being released by Epic Records. Um, and you know, like it still had the same, every single that was put out still had the same like single formats. You had to buy, uh, free CDs to get all the B sides. I mean, like, you know, it was all just very cynical, I think. Oh, do you remember that? Having to get all the different CDs, you can get all the different B sides. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and then there'd yeah. be one vinyl that I, one vinyl, then I couldn't exactly. listen to that B side on my iPod. Mm hmm. Yep. Do you remember B sides? Yeah, B sides. Oh, that's a bit of a thing of the past now, isn't it? <laughs> Does that just not happen? Don't people um, release singles now just on Spotify with a? No, not with a B side. Just single tracks. So. Yeah, yeah, you just put it on Spotify as a one-track single. I mean, yeah. sometimes the B side will be a shit remix. Mm. Yeah. Made yeah. by someone completely unrelated. Yeah, but yeah, B sides don't really happen anymore. That's a yeah. shame. Speaking of. Um, you're going to love this segue. Speaking of numerous copies of singles, the Manics released numerous singles at once. <laughs> <laughs> what? So on February 26th, they released Found That Soul and So I So Sad on the same day. 
Okay. <laughs> I just I remember the uh, the top of the pops performance uh, where they played the both like two singles back to back. Yeah. I think it was the first time it had ever happened. Yep. And again, uh, cool as fuck. Yeah. Well, it but... was cool as fuck, but like, so why so sad was the first one, and it was all in black and white, and you had the uh, the, the backing singers doing the backing vocal. Yeah. You know? yeah. And then they left, and then they played, found that soul, and then it, it turned to color. <laughs> Just, <laughs> not great production values from Top of the Pops there, but uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that was the first time that had ever happened. I just thought it was, yeah, it was cool to, to have that. Yeah, just another cool statement, but I guess, uh, again, a cool statement that kind of... Sells more records? Well, sells no, but, more CDs? But, but sure, that would, that would uh, um, negatively affect the sales, right? Yeah, it's got to have hindered the album again more than it helps. Yeah. Like, to release Found That Soul and So I So Sad, which are so stylistically disparate. I mean, I, I, I completely understand why they did it, and it's to show, like, the two sides of the album. Hmm. But then also, like, casual listeners to that are going to be like, okay, well, then what the fuck is this album going to be? Yeah. If it's going to have Found That Soul and So I So Sad, first hmm. of all, with my pocket money, <laughs> which single do I want to buy? Yeah. <laughs> so you're actually kind of splitting the audience. Yeah, you're, well, you're almost paying, like, 10 uh quid on just the singles and then you've got to spend yeah. 16 quid on the album mm. exactly um, remember when an album cost 16 quid yeah so hard as well <laughs> so hard okay to with... use the, the term quid as well yeah. I've, been in canada, I've been in canada for like 10 years it's dollars <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah the word quid yeah <laughs> i wouldn't now if someone said to me pay 16 quid a month for spotify to have access to all the world's music i'd be like that's outrageous How yeah dare yeah <laughs> i'm not paying more than a tenner yeah i share i share a family i share a family plan with friends really <laughs> <laughs> cheers for the invite wow no you're not you're not my friend oh you're yeah killing cool. music <laughs> you are good. killing music good Le- lean more people towards podcasts mm-hmm. yeah yeah sure um, <laughs> but yeah just another sort of quite cool but odd decision yeah and i'm wondering how much of this was an attempt to shed some of their audience i think i think so from all the stuff you're saying it sounds like deliberate self-sabotage after being this sort of pristine straight to number one toilet Mm. gate to now go fuck everything yeah we're like we're on top and let's just burn it to the ground and that seems very manix yeah, it does. A very self-destructive act. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is a very Manix-like thing to do. Um, yeah, I, I remember um, there was a TV show, uh, early morning SMTV, I think it was called, with Ant and Deck. With Ant and Deck. Yeah. Yeah. SMTV Live. Yeah. So you, and, you'll uh, be talking about CD UK. Oh, CD yeah. UK, Which is of course, the thing, yes. that, thing that yeah. came on after yeah. it, and I would never watch. Yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, the, the Manix were on there, and they were talking about... Um, uh, the, the so why so sad and from uh, the and, uh, were on CD UK. Oh yeah, it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube somewhere. Anton Deck are, are, are interviewing them, and uh, Nicky Y is talking about the idea of releasing two singles on the same day, and he says, "You know, the only people that have ever done it before is Frob and Gristle." <laughs> 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 and you know, I don't know. I just found that amazingly uh, funny. <laughs> the the Manix and Throbbing Gristle. Throbbing Gristle. So, yeah. So there's so, a I clip mean, somewhere where Nicky Wire is talking to Anton Deck about throbbing gristle. <laughs> we need to find that, yeah. That's I used to watch, fantastic. And Cat Dealey. And Cat. I, I, I used to watch yeah. SMTV Live to watch Pokemon. And yeah, the Manics were on that program. That's funny, anyway. Yeah. The Manics were on Pokemon. Oh, yeah, the, way, yeah, yeah, the Manics right, were on yeah. Pokemon. Yeah. Can I, go, go back to Toilet Gate. Can I just... What's wrong with 
really. If I was really rich and headlining a festival, I'd have my own toilet. It's not very socialist, is it? But it's a cleaner place to have a shit, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it was not... more. I think it was more who was doing it rather than the actual act of it. Yeah. Although you know, I I really feel that if they did it uh, at at the time of Generation Terrorists or something like that, then it would have been brilliant. But because yeah. they were oh, they, because they were millionaires, basically they were yeah. millionaires, and that that's the problem. Like yeah. I struggle to think that when Kanye West headlined Glastonbury, he didn't have his own lovely toy. Yeah, but that I you think... can get, and it's like I don't know. Yeah, it's not, yeah. But yeah, you expect that from Kanye West. I don't think Kanye West. I think that he drove into the site, stepped out of the car onto the stage, yeah. did the set, stepped off of the stage into the car and left the site. Yes. Probably. No, he stayed the whole weekend. He went to the he side was, of us. He was in the tent next to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He was stoned watching a hippie play guitar. That's what he was doing. Yeah. Um, the album comes out. It's actually pretty, like... It's, as albums go, it's pretty successful. It reaches number two. That's pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then... It's not number one, though, is it? It's not number one. <laughs> the, the, Who beat them? I don't oh, know. Oh. Ah. Probably Steps again. <laughs> um, Great band. It has like mixed reviews, um, and when I say mixed, there's a quote from the Rolling Stone that says, "Nowhere amidst all the confusion is there even a worthwhile tune to be salvaged." Hideously dull. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's a mixed review. <laughs> <laughs> did they like it or not? That's the thing. I think they didn't like it. Huh? Hideously dull. Yeah, I think that's a negative <laughs> review. Yeah, I've got that review about myself once. And the sales were much lower than expected, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it sold. It has sold around five hundred thousand copies worldwide, compared to "This Is My Truth's five million. Mm. Christ, yeah, so it's a bit different. Definitely less successful than they thought it was going to be, even. Like, I think they knew that they were going to shed the audience or some of the audience, and I think that they wanted to do that deliberately. I don't think that they wanted to do it <laughs> quite <What> that? <laughs> to that degree. It's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> because they actually, like, they do the normal tours. They go to, like, the Apollos and the Academies um, around the UK. They do festivals over the summer. But they had booked um, a, a European tour for the autumn of 2001 and a UK arena tour that sort of included two nights at Wembley Stadium, and they just sort of cancelled it without much of an explanation. Okay. Um, the the sort of like the prevailing theory is that they kind of weren't going to be able to sell the tickets for an arena tour off the back of this album. Wow. And so um, what they said at the time is they were going to go away and, and work on the greatest hits that would come out next year. But it seemed like there was a little bit of a course correct to kind of to be kind of like, oh, we, we fucked up. And in fact, on The Greatest Hits that comes out, only one song from Know Your Enemy appears of the four singles. Um, Steve, Steve what, what, what's your kind of take on that? Do you, do you think that this album was a failure? Um, 
Well, <laughs> judging by the record sales and the cancelled tours, yeah, I would say it was. Uh, to me, though, like it just got me more excited for what was going to be coming in the future. Mm. I'm not mm. saying that I was... Uh, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, um, not saying that I was thrilled by Lifeblood. Um, right. But to me, the possibility of what, what came after Know Your Enemy was uh, was pretty exciting. Um that just being the possibility though not actually what did come um because lifeblood's not my favorite record but it is uh, I, I do like it as as i've sort of got older and used to it um it, it is once again sort of like its own yeah beast. yeah yeah but um so yeah like i guess it was a failure for the manix for sure but um i still i still held out i'll hold on to it as a as a as a great record and uh, a great period actually of their of their career mm. so i'm definitely probably in a minority <laughs> <laughs> it is it's such a it's such a little like odd one out in their yeah. in their back catalog in terms of like fan adoration i mean this is where a lot of manix fans just simply sort of stopped listening to them really yeah well it 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 was then i mean when you kind of now look at their career from today there's lots of anomalies now I think that's true. So and, no, and your enemy think... doesn't stick out quite as much as it probably did in, uh, in 2001 when there was only six records. Now there's 13 yeah. and there's other things to consider now, like the solo records as well. And things like that, you know, even like, Oh yeah. The uh, solo records are very interesting. So yeah, you know, um, there's also a lot of yeah. retrospective love for this album now. I think, um, that's from that's talking true. with people on Twitter as new fans have sort of, have this whole, like you were saying, have the whole back catalogue to delve into. They, um, there's a bit more of an appreciation for for Know Your Enemy. Um, yeah, I was going to say you put out on Twitter what you know, let us know all your thoughts on Know Your Enemy, and I deliberately didn't look at those because I wanted to. I'm famously, I will just take anyone's opinion. That's the joke on the podcast. Um, so I wanted to go in completely. <laughs> it's the um, it's the fact on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't want to read any of it, but. Um, I, I saw how many people were talking on there about it, so I know it was going to be divisive. And those opinions ranged everywhere from this is my favourite Manix album, this is the like the peak of their creativity, all the way down to like I listened to this album once and then never listened to Manic Street Preachers again. Wow. Yeah. But then there's also the, the case to be made for it as well. Um, as As a palate cleanser in a way... That it, it, they needed to get this record out of their system, right. so, that, so they could continue. So when you look at it as a failure, um, you know, it it did move into other records like "Send Away the Tigers," which was massive, mm. um, and gave them the uh, the space to write music to the Richie Edwards uh, lyrics in "Journal for Plague Lovers." So like it, it did give them. Yeah, I, I look at it as a palate cleanser in some in some respects as well. So to sort of say that it's a failure, they realised that they perhaps couldn't get away with this anymore, and they needed to make sort of <laughs> records which were palatable. Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the big things about about the Manics is they make no um, no excuses for the fact that they do want to be popular. Do you know what I mean? They they want to sell albums and they want to 
communicate to the masses. They, you know, they they could have taken Know Your Enemy and then delved even further into like lo-fi, odd little releases and stuff like that. Um, but they didn't, as we will find out uh, in the future. I don't want to spoil too much for the other Steve and Lucas. Yeah. Um, I did task you with the impossible task that I give all of our guests, which is to give us a top 10 Manic songs. Yeah. Mm. How did you get on? So um, I have, yep, I have my top 10. And this is top. Uh, this is just top ten manic songs of all time. Well, this is uh, <laughs> what I think is the the mm-hmm. first three um, manic songs on this list are locked in uh, right, to, their, okay. to their positions. I think what comes after um, is basically just the a big like blurge of manic songs that all fit at number four <laughs> so yeah, right. they're okay. all like they're interchangeable <laughs> from this point so like yeah so um on my list is motorcycle emptiness is my favorite manic song that is yeah uh, quite a good song yeah good song yeah yeah good song uh, faster Deez. faster is my second uh, lucas how do you song. feel about that no comment <laughs> no faster no faster is one of the ones i liked off the album Okay. Good song. Okay. I mean, great um, song. Yeah. Great I just song. didn't rate the album. <laughs> and uh, number three is "Design for Life." So that's a pretty, cool. yeah, that's yep. a pretty rudimentary sort of. I, I think those are top three. the three. Those are yep. the three manic songs. So that yep. third one, I don't know. If, I don't know if I've heard of that third. We're not. <laughs> yeah. We've not got onto that one yet. I don't think so. Well, the, the thing is with "Design for Life" is, I mean, it's not really a song that I listen to an awful lot, but it has to be in there, right? Like, it's just, it's yeah. got to be. I mean, when it first <laughs> this came is what out, everybody I, has said. Yeah, and when it first came out, I wasn't that bothered about it at all. Um, but in 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 sort of revealing the Manics' history and uh, what that song kind of rep- represents, you know, mm. it is it's a very important song. Um, and when when it does, when I do listen to it, when it does come on or whatever, it does still kind of make me sort of stop in my tracks and like just uh, I have to kind of just uh, embrace the whole the, the sound of it because it is just so gorgeous. Absolutely. Uh, the yeah. Same with motorcycle emptiness and faster as well. Um, but then after this, it does. This can kind of interchange throughout. So I love of Richard Nixon. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. Pause. Adam's very excited. <laughs> in your in your in your top ten of all time. I think it is in my top ten. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I I love it. Talk it's, to me. Speak on that. It's so. <laughs> it's I think so, Adam might like Lifeblood. I'm just gonna. Yeah, well, I I do like Lifeblood too. I, I think this song, um, this song was exciting to me when it first came out because I'd never heard, I hadn't heard all of Lifeblood yet. But this yeah. was like, this was a song trying to uh, redeem Richard Nixon. Yeah. But it on a it, but it's so jaunty. Like it's got this lovely like bop to it, you know. And it it's, sounds nothing uh, like Manic Street Preachers. Yeah, well. it doesn't again. sound anything like Manic Street Preachers again. And I love the music, the music video to that song as well. I think is just a brilliant music video with their Nixon yeah. masks on, kicking around a football. I don't know. It just looks really. Mm-hmm. Fun. So I that thought that was the that was the first that. new Manic single that I was a fan for. Like I, I became a fan, and then the next single that they um, brought out was The Love of Richard Nixon. So it's the okay. first thing I heard like new on the radio and stuff yeah so i thought it again i think it's kind of one of those singles which is just kind of uh, a mad manic song in in some respects interesting um, i love that pick that's such so, a cool pick for a so adam ten. does that mean this is the album that got you into manics no oh not know your enemy i must have just misunderstood what you just said then um 
I got into the Manics in 2000. Oh, wait, do you mean Lifeblood? Or no, well, no, 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 but you just said the first thing you heard new was a single off Lifeblood. Right, yeah. So I became a fan in like 2003, 2004. The first album I heard was probably Everything Must Go or The Holy Bible. Oh, sure. Because yeah. you've got the whole... There's this thing, Lucas, where um, you can go back and listen to albums that have already been recorded. <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> you don't have to just listen to the most recent one. Yeah. Is, that what, is that what we've been doing? That's what we've been doing on the podcast. Oh. Did you think oh, all yeah. of these albums were being released as we I was we really were impressed with how them? quickly yeah. they were making albums. Every two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Keep Sorry, going, I'd Steve. Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> no problem at all. Uh, let Robeson sing. Yep, okay, great song. Again, that's uh, another uh, one of those signposts like uh, Manic Songs, which has sent me down uh, the rabbit hole of Paul Robeson's life and career. Quite tragic. Um, Black Square from Futurology. Oh, wow. Again, these just, are some cool picks. These, uh, and, and again, like I'm not trying to be pretentious or anything like that. These are just genuine songs. That I look, I, Black, no, Black yeah, Square absolutely. was a song. Again, it's it's a piece of music. Really, it's not really a song in in a sense. It's just this yeah. kind of wonderful uh, synth based. Uh, it sounds very different, and um, it took a while for me to get that song. For uh, but once I did, I was I was hooked into that. So it was a great record as well. Uh, Hold me like a heaven. Again, that's just a song that's which very has recent. Yeah. very recent, but I can't believe that a band so far into their career can write a song like that. <laughs> like I it's know. just it's yeah. glorious. It's a glorious song. Um, Intravenous Agnostic, which comes so that's from, from Know Your Enemy. Enemy. That's from yeah. Know Your Enemy. Um, just a very vibrant uh, song. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and, and, and great lyrics too. Uh, Little Baby Nothing from Generation Terrorists. I love Little Baby Nothing. Yeah, I. I'm kind of in split between whether I love it as the recorded song on Generation Terrorists or the live rendition um, that James does. Uh, mm. I kind of like just hearing James's voice on it, but I also do quite like Tracy Lord's uh, voice on it as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Of, it just fits sure. the song. It suits the song really well. And then lastly is Motown Junk. Classic. Cool. Yeah. That's a cool top ten. That's got some like classics in it, and also some really left field mad uh, picks. I like I've got that a lot a of time lot. for the left field mad picks. That, yeah, <laughs> that don't conform to what the fans like. Well, you should like yeah. this record. Know your enemy, then. <laughs> oh, we'll find out in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much uh, for doing this with us. It's my pleasure. Um, that was very illuminating, and I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thanks, um, man. It was really nice to just talk about this record, actually. Yeah, it's it's um, it is it is a uh, a record that's not part of the Manic Street Preachers conversation a lot, um, so which is is a shame. So it's been really nice to have have a chat about it. What I love um, is when we get guests on and they talk passionately about the Manics. Adam's little face because he used to he talk to it. he used to talk to me and Lucas usually. Well, because of the. Um, because of the uh, the uh, end of your sentence, yeah, <laughs> uh, reputation that Know Your Enemy has, it's just nice to hear someone talk passionately about <laughs> about Know Your Enemy and not all of the reasons that they that they dislike it, um, which which is great. Um, what how how do we usually finish? Oh, I need to do like thank you for listening. 
Stephen, Thanks. again, thank you so much for doing this. It's been really great. Um, everybody go out and buy Stephen's book because, you know, we barely scratched the surface of the depth of stuff on Know Your Enemy on this episode. And Stephen's got, like, so many great insights. It's called Riffs and Meaning, uh, Manic Street Preachers and Know Your Enemy. I'm holding a copy up to the video, which means nothing to people on <laughs> a podcast. Um, <laughs> and it's a really great, it's a really, really great read. And you can get that. You can get that basically anywhere, can't you, Stephen? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 Um, you can also talk to us basically anywhere. We're on Twitter at Mannix Podcast. We're on Instagram at Mannix Podcast. And you can email us, Podcast at gmail.com. Next time. Is it next week? No, it's not going to be next week. It's going to be in two weeks' time. Yeah. We're going to be doing the track by track on Know Your Enemy. Um, we're going to go through all of the songs. Thank you so much for listening. It's going to be and a long one, isn't it? I mean, it's not going to be short. (laughs) (laughs) Remember that uh, we live in urban hell and we destroy rock and uh, roll. Uh, roll. Bye. (laughs) Bye Bye-bye.